Hi, I'm Liam Dalton, a senior political science and Chinese major and a proud member of the Notre Dame International Security Undergraduate Certificate Program. This is Students Talk Security Podcast Episode 2 of the Fall 2018 semester. Today I have the good fortune of speaking with Huang Shan, a guest scholar in the Kellogg Institute. Uh, he is the Beijing-based deputy managing editor and an editorial board member of Saishin Media, a financial and business news service, and manages Saishin's bureaus in Washington, D.C., New York City, and Tokyo. He contributes to the English language edition of Saishin's print and online publications and previously served as international editor of Saijing Magazine. Sean has interviewed international leaders, including Hillary Clinton and F.W. de Klerk, and provided counsel and analysis about current affairs to Beijing's foreign community, including diplomatic missions, commerce chambers, and businesses. He earned a BA in international politics from Peking University in 2001 and an MA in political science in 2004 from the University of Notre Dame, where he received the Presidential Fellowship. While at Notre Dame this fall, Sean is studying the sustainability and resilience of the Chinese economy under Xi Jinping, focusing on the innovation-driven new economy, as well as Chinese foreign affairs in the Xi era. And that is why it's so great to have him on to discuss our topic today, Beyond Traditional Security, the Ascending Trajectory of Economic Security in China's National Security Portfolio, obviously an extremely salient issue, particularly in the era of rising U.S. anti-globalism, international trade tensions, and American concern about the trajectory of China's rise. I would like to actually just shout out uh, Michelle Hawks. Uh, the director of the Leo Institute for Asia and Asian Studies in the Kyo School of Global Affairs uh, for arranging an introduction between me and Sean. Sean, thank you for coming on with us. Thank you, Liam. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. <clears throat> so, Sean, uh, just kind of jumping into this question of economic security, why does China attach greater and greater importance uh, to economic security? So, actually, Liam, you know that actually I think economic prosperity brings the biggest legitimacy and the credibility to China's ruling party, right? Uh, since the reform opening up, I think, four, uh, four decades ago, um, one of the unflinching goal has been to maintain economic prosperity and economic growth. Now we have seen actually an uh, ongoing process in which China's emphasized qualitative growth more than quantitative growth. But a stable international environment, particularly a neighboring peaceful environment is the prerequisite for China's growth. Also, securing steady supplies of strategically important energy and commodities remain China's the, uh, key priorities. I think uh, particularly and the other side is that China, uh, you know, when we talk about security, actually we talk about domestic security. And I think amid the intensified the trade war between China and the U.S., we have seen China is pushing to accelerate growth of its own technology research and the development capacity to move the economy to the upper end uh, of the international supply chain. I think um, the strategic goal now has assumed great urgency amid the trade war and and also foreign regulators tightening security uh, scrutiny of Chinese investment in high-tech sectors. So combining all these contexts and uh, and China's long-term, you know, um, uh, initiative, long-term strategy. You can see why um, economic 
uh, uh, security now is the taking more imp importance in China's the uh, national security portfolio. So for China, you talked a lot there about the role of prosperity and then also the role of maintaining um, peace in their region in order to boost the economy. Uh, how much does economic prosperity mean translating into eventual military power? Um, what does economic security really mean to China? So I, I think uh, definitely I think it's the um, you know um, it's a combination of a military uh, you know security and also also the economic security and I think definitely if you want to build up the world class the matters you need to need to spend tons of you know money into build it so we know China now is a process to build a second uh, um, uh, uh, home made. Uh, uh, aircraft carrier, right? right. And you need a, 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 a big pumping of money into this. So I think definitely in the past four decades, China's economic boom and economic prosperity bring um, uh, make it enable China to you know to really streamline its military capabilities and project its power uh, into the world stage. You can see actually not just about the military buildup. Also, we look at the Chinese the footprint of Chinese the peacemaking missions. And across the world, we can see now China contribute, I think, one of the biggest uh, uh, money and the biggest uh, personnel to UN peacemaking process uh, in Africa, right? And I think uh, by doing so, China is really, um, uh, uh, you know, a project is, uh, it's, uh, you know, not just military power, but also economic might onto the uh, world stage. But also, if we look at the Chinese the domestic documents, we know that we just said the Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party uh, held is the Party Congress uh, last fall, and in this Party Congress, uh, the, the document it said China now is set to uh, you know be on the world center stage. Right. That means China is sort of people a lot of you know I think there's big controversy, big debate about which way China's foreign policy and China's uh, you know security uh, security portfolio is heading for. <laughs> but I think the overwhelming consensus that China is definitely trying to uh, uh, set line the previous uh, uh, you know keep low profile and bite your time approach. Right. And that means China definitely will take a more determined. Take a more assertive role in the world stage, particularly. I think, in, you know, comparing China's the, um, you know, uh, the power with the Americas, my sense is that definitely, if you're really trying to draw comparison between both militaries' capability, I don't think China has any chances to, you know, overtaking the U.S. in the anytime soon. But when it comes to economic, uh, you know, power, economic might, or you know, definitely we'll talk about the better road initiative a little bit later. But definitely, this is we call China's the, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, over, uh, overarching goal, trying right. to, you know, copy China's prosperity lesson in the past four decades to the rest of the world, particularly uh, underprivileged or developing countries, because right. China really learned a big. Uh, good lessons from the uh, you know infrastructure build, uh, right. build building process. That means that if you build a, a, a good quality roads, mm. ports, power plants, all these fun, you know infrastructure uh, projects, you can really um, make the foundation for a sound economy. I think China really wants to exp export this kind of the development method to developing countries. I think this is the uh, uh, the fundamentals of the China's the. Uh, 
we call the economic uh, outreach program. Right. Well, you know, Sean, it seems like there's a tension with China between these ambitious calculations about the future that are based on uh, uh, demographics, that are based on projections of uh, economic capacity. Um, But then there's also this moment of the now, um, where earlier this year, the Chinese stock market entered a bear market. Um, and China has, is at a, an inflection point in a well-documented uh, credit kind of, you know, maybe crisis isn't the right word, but they're having trouble. Um, how do you see, uh, you know, this trade war playing out, Trump slapping on those additional $200 billion worth of tariffs um, at a time when the United States economy is so strong, um, the Chinese economy is showing signs of weakening, um, but there's also these future calculations in mind. Well, my sense is that actually, um, definitely there are some kind of miscalculation on both parts of the, uh, you know, Washington and Beijing. And in Beijing, definitely, I think we mistrust the determination of President Trump to slap, you know, pu- uh, 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 punitive uh, tariffs on, on China. And also, we underestimate its determination to, you know, penalize China and think of China as the biggest, you know, um, uh, biggest, uh, you know, obstructors of the global um, world uh, trade system. But on the part of the, uh, the, the Trump administration, I think also they underestimated the rising that nationalism and mm. the, the rising determination of the Beijing leadership to. Uh, not to negotiate with the gun pointing your head, right? Right. And a lot of people say that both leaders are alpha men. That means it's not easy for them to to show their weaknesses, uh, to show uh, make any concessions under threats of the uh, you know heavy-handed approach. So if you extend your fist instead of your hand, so nobody wants to blink in the first place. I think this is a mentality. But when it comes to you know the the, the broader picture of uh, U.S. China rivalry or U.S. China competition, and maybe I will use the U.S. China competition, I would argue that actually it really depends on. I mean, it really depends on how Chinese uh, China's leaders reform the domestic economy and they really push ahead with already you know uh, uh, written uh, you know reform and opening blueprint. So the good thing is that actually China set up its efforts to open up is the, uh, for, for example, foreign services sectors to, to the foreign companies. And the latest news, the Chinese Premier um, Li Keqiang announced that uh, China will give a level, level playing field to not just Chinese, but also foreign firms operating in China during the, the latest uh, uh, summer hours in Tianjin. So I think it's really a draw a lot a big applause from you know foreign foreign friends. And as we notice that actually I think the biggest victims from the escalating trade war between Washington and Beijing is foreign owned joint ventures mm. they operate in China and also China's private sector. Because if you look at the statistics, you will know that actually ninety percent of the Chinese export to US are manufactured or are produced by the joint ventures, foreign joint ventures, and the private private companies in China. So that means the target uh, by the, the Trump administration, I mean the state-owned enterprises, or we call the state, you know, 
state SOEs. They are really uh, accounted of a tiny or ignorable portion of the uh, export, you know, export volumes. So I don't think the uh, trade war is a really good way to deal with uh, people say root cause or fundamental difference between the U.S. and China. Actually, if you look at the the, the argument done by the Trump administration that they're trying to correct Chinese the uh, uh, unfair government subsidized and also the uh, IP intellectual property theft and also Chinese distorted you know industry policies. So, but all these you know are key demands I I would say would not be met by the trading you know the, the escalating trade war because actually you hit. The, the, the industry which are really the, 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 the victims, you can see, if you say the three, the key demands are the root causes of the, 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 the trading war between US and China, I would say actually the trade war really hit the wrong targets. Right. That's really interesting. Now, in terms of the actual war itself, um, one thing that has been talked about and been given considerable coverage here in the United States, and I'm interested to hear your wisdom on this because you might understand um, exactly how the Beijing government might look at this, um, is that, I mean, look, we take in so many more products from China than we send there. And so at a certain point, if we're going tit for tat mm. on this trade war, um, at some point if we have tariffs on all of the products coming in from China, as Trump has suggested he might want to do, um, China will have no way of retaliating. No. Um, now, how do you think that they would look at that problem, um, particularly in the sense that uh, we learn here that in terms of nuclear deterrence, if that deterrent capability breaks down um, at a lower level, then you could see escalation. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a risk for economic escalation? Well, I think um, now actually people talking about Chinese can definitely, as you mentioned, that China cannot has a tit for tat. I mean, a quantitative tit for tat approach mm -hmm. because the, the very unbalanced, you know, the trade relationship between us. So what China can do really try to de-escalate kind of a qualitative retaliation, right, and make life more difficult for the U.S. business operating in China, and for example, you know, to. Uh, uh, lengthening, you know, the, uh, the, the customs clearance uh, process and also the, uh, make the licensing more problematic for the U.S. companies. But I don't think that really uh, um, work uh, both ways because actually I think it really, as I, as I mentioned, that actually it's really, you will hit the wrong target because I, as we know that the business community in the U.S. actually uh, over a long term is a state first, most state first supporter of uh, of a better economic relationship between Washington and this uh, and China, right. so um, if you really hit the, the long target, so you definitely will um, exchange or isolate the the, the, the most set uh, first uh, ally, your mm -hmm. friends in the states. And my, my, my sense is that actually um, now, if you really look around, you can see China now is taking more quiet or low-profile approaches in this escalating trade war. China now is really looking around for allies or friends or like-minded, you know, the, the, the countries. Now, as we know that uh, we just have a China-Africa summit took place early this month in Beijing, and China promised to continue to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, contribute $60 billion, uh, sorry, uh, 60 billion US dollars for help. Um, development of African countries 
also trying to try to cut deals with the European Union and also Japan. We know China trying to uh, uh, revitalize the uh, previous frozen or cold relationship between Tokyo and Beijing.、Mm. So China now is trying to、uh, make as many friends as like we can, and trying to、uh, think out the Trump administration as the biggest, I mean,、um, obstructor. Uh, of the、uh, the post-war、uh, global citizen, I mean a WTO-based rule-based citizen, and China is quite you know we turn to the WTO、um, adjudication panel trying to、uh, penalize the U.S. the、uh, unilateral you know approaches. So I think by doing so, China really turn to the multilateral, a plurilateral approach to to、um, uh, to make us you know.、Um, You know, viewed as kind of the victim of the trade war between the U.S. and China. So I think by doing so,、uh, we can really see、uh, China trying to、uh, not to escalate the confrontation because we know, as far as China's development is concerned, the U.S. still the major market for China's export goods. Right. And also. Maybe the biggest, the, one of the biggest markets for China's high-tech acquisition target, you know,、uh, targets. But、um, yes, I think the life definitely become more difficult for China, China's enterprises to acquire state-of-the-art technology in the U.S.、Mm. market. But still, we know that、uh, if you really want to be success, international player, if you really encourage Chinese company go abroad, if you really to try to make international reputation or make their name. More widely recognizable in the world stage, U.S. is inescapable market.、Mm. So definitely, anybody, I don't think China can really,、uh, um, you know, achieve its economic goal or make its China can mid level power by the uh, uh, by the、uh, middle of the century.、Um, uh, deteriorating relationship between China and the U.S. is definitely is a last thing China will be seen. Right, I think it's a really interesting point you make too about China making friends, new friends, while the United States loses them <laughs> or estranges them,、um, and the irony that、uh, China is trying to,、uh, in some ways, economically cozy up to Tokyo, while Abe is saying, "Hey, maybe we're next"、yeah. when it comes to Washington's trade fury,、um, and also the irony of China using the WTO、yeah. to legitimize. Um, their side of this war,、um, the trade war. So it's a it's a really interesting discussion that fits in with that question of economic security,、um, like you said, because、uh, China and the U.S. can't live together, but also can't seem to live without one another.、Mm-hmm. Um, and、uh, I think we're going to continue to talk about it for some time.、Uh, I'd like to move on to the Belt and Road Initiative、mm-hmm. here.、Um, When I was in China this past summer, and I spoke to the Chinese about、uh, the Belt and Road Initiative,、uh, many of them saw it as a very ambitious, idealistic program,、um, something that could be achieved in some ways, but would also、uh, was also kind of this、uh, you know best case scenario for Chinese development in the Asian region, the Eurasian region.、Um, what do you think will be the outlook、uh, for the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, actually, I think when the Better Road Initiative was launched, or almost I think five or six years ago, I think it's late two thousand thirteen, 
is really a lot of question mark about what the BRI, I mean, better is still meant and what kind of the financial arrangement China will do in the process. Because we know actually when it comes to the, uh, the huge gaps, uh, you know, huge deficit when it comes to the infrastructure building, you know, not just the, uh, in Asia, but also across, the, you know, we call the old Asian Silk Road. You can see it's a huge amount. Let China, even China cannot, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to fail, right? Because we know the, 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 the the base funding, I mean the seed funding for what we call the AIIB Asia Infrastructure uh, uh, Development Bank. So it's still around uh, 100 billion dollars. But mm -hmm. when it comes to the infrastructure deficits, it's about people say it's 8 trillion US dollars per year. Right. I mean, for, uh, no, for 8 trillion dollars for the next you know, five years. Right. So I think there exists a huge gap between you know, um, the, the, the financing demand and the supplies. So I don't think China by itself can really support, you know, um, these, these huge, you know, projects. So now actually, if you look at, uh, you know, the, we call better road line countries like Pakistan, like uh, Malaysia, like Sri Lanka, actually, if you read the daily newspapers, you will see actually China's investment there, China's good intention, maybe you can say, China's good intention activities actually draw tons of criticism and, uh, and, uh, and the disquiet from local community, from politicians. We know actually latest thing is that taking place in, 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 in Malaysia, actually Malaysia scrap actually a two, six, uh, 26 billion US dollars you know, projects. So they suspended and terminated. So I think the huge blow to the ambitions of China's better road initiatives. So my sense is that China now is in the process of rethink or have a second thought on the, the, the merits and the demerits of uh, better road initiative because when it comes to, you know, a lot of people try to draw comparison between the Marshall Plan, you know, US mm -hmm. launched Marshall Plan after uh, World War II and, and, and the Baton Road. People say, well, uh, it's likened Baton Road to, to the, the Chinese version or Chinese con uh, equivalent of a Marshall Plan. But I think the biggest difference between the Marshall Plan and the China Baton Road Marshall Plan is kind of the one-way traffic. That means the U.S. doesn't want, I did not want any, uh, 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 you know, compensation mm, or any the right. monetary or physical, uh, uh, you know, returns from these this huge projects. But this is quite, I think, but once it comes to the better road initiative, I think we said this is a commerce-based one. Mm. So that means it's not one-way traffic. We really do want a commercial and economic return from right. our investment. So most of the companies, yes, you can say they're state-owned contractors, state-owned companies. But now you can see the increasing number of trans-private sectors, private companies, they're trying to operate along the better road uh, uh, countries. Right. So my sense is that, uh, that now that if you continue to lose money, if you cannot get uh, um, reasonable economic or financial return from, you can say, people say white elephant projects, <laughs> I don't think it's quite a sustainable one. And really, uh, uh, you know, draw not just criticism from local communities, local politicians, but also from Chinese domestic constituents. Right. And I can tell you that actually, yes, maybe you can say China has no really formal, I mean, you know, um, um, formal election system in Western terms, but still, we, I think the leadership has faced the pressure from the, the constituents, from our, you know, people. 
people will really say why you spend so much money in unprofitable, you know, unsustainable projects. So it's a lose-lose situation for China's the international <coughs> influence, but also China's the physical, physical coffers, right? So right. I think when the government are facing increasing pressure from our constituents, from our domestic uh, audience, <coughs> so they need to rethink about uh, the, the strategy, how you can sustain and then make the better initiatives and those projects more sustainable and more, more, more reasonable, uh, economically speaking. Um, so, um, generally speaking, I would say that uh, now China is in the second round of uh, better road initiatives. Mm -hmm. That means we will encourage more, uh, you know, participation from not just Chinese, you know, banks, financial institutions, contract contractors, or private sectors. We will invite uh, uh, all the stakeholders from across the world, particularly an Asian, a Latin American country, an <laughs> African country. So I, we really make it, a, you know, it's a, it's a multiplayer game right. instead of single player game. And also dispute the burden, the physical and financial burden among all the stakeholders instead of just they will take shoulder all the heavy burden. I think yeah, this is a really, uh, really, uh, you know, uh, the, the second second round of the uh, you know better road initiatives. So, I actually uh, I did a little bit of reading on this, trying to understand why China uh, was going through the process of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and I came across a great report from the Lowy Institute um, mm. last year uh, that talked about dealing with excess production capacity, that it was less about trying to actually trade Chinese products and create bigger market for Chinese products, but actually to move a lot of whole factories um, to these Belt and Road uh, countries. The United States has had a lot of experience with the perils of stoking nationalism um, we have invaded countries, um, but in this case, uh, domestic uh, industries could come under threat by Chinese companies. Uh, what impact do you think the BRI will have on neighboring com uh, countries? Will the potential economic benefits for these countries outweigh the politics of nationalism? Yeah, actually, you mentioned a very significant concept. Now, people actually criticize China practice so-called neo-colonialism mm. and trying to actually repeat, you know, we, what we call the, the past one hundred humiliation process. Actually, reimpose right the the, the 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 humiliation now onto the neighboring country like Sri Lanka. We know actually China's. You know the port operators trying to uh, get 99 years of lease right, uh, from uh, Sri Lanka and trying to people say this is really um, uh, make us um, you know reminiscent of the, the Hong Kong you know the new territories. So when the British Empire signed a very un unfair treaty with the then the Manchu uh, regime trying to uh, you know occupy the Hong Kong. So now people. You know, draw a parallel between Chinese the uh, latest activities to you know uh, the previous colonist did one hundred years ago. So my sense is that definitely those the uh, locally based backlash against China's the uh, I call economic um, outreach program is more or less is is you know it's definitely is reasonable. But uh, now, but let's let on the other hand, we need to. Uh, rethink on um, about our approach 
That means we cannot repeat. You know, if you you say if you export the overcapacity, right? As I mentioned, overcapacity to the neighboring countries, and you export uh, those the highly uh, polluted and uh, highly inefficient industry like a steel and aluminum making, you know, a manufacturing overcapacity to neighboring countries. I don't think this is a good way for Chinese the uh, software, uh, so a uh, soft power, soft power. You know, um, uh, promotion activities. We know trying to uh, cultivate itself as kind of the defender of the global uh, trade system, as the, uh, the, the the biggest champion of uh, globalization. So, if you really continue um, those, um, I would call, call the twenty-century approaches, you will definitely um, be dealt a blow from the neighboring countries. Now, I think we really need to think about, you know, how you can really uh, uh, align your nationally promoted objectives with the down uh, on the ground projects. That means you definitely need to uh, export. I mean, you you know, uh, you know, make make the relation, economic relation more you know, complementary, right, and then make it uh, more. Um, you know, a mutual beneficial instead of the as I mentioned one-way traffic. So definitely, you must develop local capacity, make the capacity building a top priority for these kind of projects. You cannot just the uh, export the we call overcapacity to the neighboring country, the polluting local environment. So I think we really need to pay a, a lot of attention to the criticism. We cannot just say, "Wow, this is the uh, we call the." Uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 the negative pro propaganda by the Western media and just the, uh, uh, don't pay a lot of attention to this criticism. I don't think you can do this. So you must be very smart. Uh, I would call it smart investment. So you must be, do very smartly in your investment <clears throat> and encourage Chinese companies, Chinese the, um, uh, contractors to uh, really um, you know, listen to local communities, listen to their concerns, listen to their complaints and try to correct your process, you know, trying to correct the procedures um, during your dealing with, uh, with these, these company, uh, the, uh, local communities. I think it definitely is the uh, learning curve for Chinese companies, because we talk about going broad strategy, right? I think going broad strategy actually was implemented um, at the turn of the century. I mean, just the year, eighteen years ago. But so I think that the time definitely is quite short for Chinese companies, Chinese going broad um, enterprises to learn. So we definitely need to um, pay attention to those criticism and the learning by doing. Excellent. Well. I want to thank you for coming on, Huang Shan, to share your knowledge about this multidimensional issue. Um, clearly, we're just at the start of the ascending trajectory of economic security in China's national security portfolio. Um, and so uh, I'm sure that your voice on this campus and elsewhere will get louder and louder um, in your wealth of knowledge. So thank you for sharing that uh, with us today. Um, I'd like to also thank Anika Johnson uh, for uh, organizing this podcast and for the technical support. Uh, this has been Students Talk Security Podcast Episode 2. Uh, I'm Liam Dalton. Please come back and listen to future episodes. Uh, you can find them all on the Notre Dame International Security Center website. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, 
please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.